We're starting a new book this morning. It's always exciting. Second Peter. It's easy to find because it comes right after. Very good. You guys are excelling. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 1. Put your finger there and I'll eventually get there. We'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Father God, as we turn our hearts to your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our understanding. We could understand these truths which are spiritually discerned. We need the Holy Spirit to translate these words to our hearts. In Jesus' name, for the glory of his kingdom, amen. All right, let me tell you first quickly why Second Peter is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. It's a short little book, three chapters, but really the reason I like it so much is that it's fiery. It is uh, really hot and spicy when it comes to New Testament epistles. How many of you like spicy food? Let me see your hand. Wow, see, you are in the right place if that translates into hot and spicy theology as well. Uh, because I like the kind of food that gets in there and grabs you by the scruff of the uh, throat there and just makes you know that you're eating some good food. The same, when I'm reading the Bible, I just want to feel. I want to feel heaven and, and, and earth and hell fighting good and evil and all of that. And, and there's a lot of negative things said in Second Peter and why a lot of people sort of avoid uh, even sermons, when you go online to look around at commentaries, a lot of pastors skip over Second Peter uh, because of, there's a lot of negativity. Uh, the negativity isn't like James. James' negativity is about us. <laughs> And so James, for me, is a hard one to read because he's constantly, the arrows are flying at you, the Christian, calling you out on compromise. But here, the negative uh, uh, elements of 2 Peter, the fiery, is directed not at us, but at false teachers. And it really gets heated. It opens up, you know, Peter's now nearing the end of his life, just for a little context. Uh, and he's got a three-chapter swan song of sorts in his heart, ready to be launched into the night sky like a fiery Flare. His last words are important. Last words are always streamlined of any excess, and they get right to the point, don't they, at what's really important. He will tell you in this letter that the Lord has made it clear to him that his days on earth were coming to a close, and that gives you a good idea of what's up with Second Peter, these three short chapters. Chapter 1, really saying, Christian, do you realize that God has given you his divine nature. He has given you heavenly power to become the person you're supposed to be. So all of those commands to be holy, God will, with his power and his nature in you, equip and enable you to reach that potential, to be. So God doesn't just say, hey, you need to be holy. He also equips the believer to become the thing that he's calling you to do. And so that's chapter one, and we're going to look at that 
in this morning's sermon. Uh, but then chapter 2 is where the heat comes with a fiery denunciation of false teachers who really have some similar uh, dynamics to what we see in the world today. So you won't want to miss chapter 2 because it's very relatable. You know, Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. And these old heresies, uh, they've been around forever. 2,000 years ago, and you will see as he's denouncing teachers that were bugging Christian churches then, 2,000 years ago, are still happening today. And then closing out chapter 3, another fire, but actually a description of the day of the Lord, the second coming. Just a sobering reflection about how the end of the world happens with a question. He says, really, and this is his thesis statement, then we'll dive in. It really appears in chapter 3 at the end. He's saying, if this is the way the world ends, and this is the fiery display of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, appearing in the clouds with great glory, and that every eye shall see and stand before him to answer for how they live their lives, and that earth and the heavens melting away in fire. What kind of person should you be today? That's the whole point of Second Peter. In view of how this whole thing is going to go down, how do you want that face-to-face -face interview with Jesus Christ, your Lord, your maker, to go? Because today you will determine how that day will fare. That, my friend, is Second Peter in a nutshell. So that's his heart. So it's no surprise he's going to open with words how we can become that kind of godly person. Second Peter chapter 1, 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and, our, and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you, might, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, but if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. And so these are the words upon which we will reflect for this morning's Bible study. You see, Peter really sees his day approaching. It's now in sight. And so uh, that really shapes his objective with this letter, how to ensure that on that day that everything goes well. So once you get past the two-verse greeting, we have a mini-sermon here from uh, verses 3 to 11 with really three points, and it has made my job much easier. Uh, point number one, God's sufficient power, plus point number two, our diligent effort equals point number three, great reward. So think of it as a little math equation. God's power plus our effort equals a great uh, assuring reward. So first, some important facts from the introduction. It's only a couple sentences there. Uh, it's our brother Simon Peter, the man with two names, uh, writing to us. The one name that mom and dad gave him when they saw him, Simon very common Jewish name. And then the one that Jesus, his maker, gave him, a nickname. Cephas in the Hebrew or Aramaic translated Peter uh, in the English. Now, Peter doesn't want to forget who, who he was and who he is without Christ. He's Simon Peter, and sometimes he acts like Simon, and sometimes he acts more like the rock man, which is what Peter means, the rock man. And that's the story of all believers. We all have two names. Our fleshly, worldly uh, name of this earth and the name that God has given us Christian, the name that we are becoming, the man of God, the woman of God that you were meant to be. Interesting in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, we are given a white stone by our Lord, each person. And a name is written on that stone, a new name of who you really are, his name for you, a name that you share only with him. No one else knows that name. And so really, it's just a nice spiritual application to see it's Simon Peter. He's got two names and he's got two titles too. He says, first and foremost, I'm just a slave, doulos in the Greek. It means uh, he's been bought and purchased by Jesus. This isn't his epistle or his message. It's not about him. He's not making this stuff up. He's a slave and this is about God and he's a messenger and that's what apostle means, a messenger. So he has God's authority to speak God's message. So the man with two names and two titles has one audience and he says to any Christian with like-minded faith as precious as ours. He's saying, don't put me on a pedestal. Your faith is as precious and is the same as an apostle of the Lord who hung out with Jesus Christ, the God-man. He says, do you have faith? He says, there's no second-class Christian. You're not just, oh, oh, yeah, I'm just some little Christian out there. He says, equal partners in the same honor, the same wonderful, majestic glory of being an apostle. That faith that you have in your heart is as precious as the faith on equal footing 
with an apostle of Jesus Christ. No second-class citizens in heaven. And so, excuse me, he says, to all who Jesus our God and Savior has put right with himself to all who have received that same faith in him, grace and overflowing peace to you through our knowledge of God. Please note that Peter now has, it has dawned on him and he makes great use of this fact that Jesus is God. In the Greek there, look at it for yourself. Where does Jesus ever claim to be God or where does the the Bible ever called Jesus God, right here, Second Peter, first uh, chapter, verse 1. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the Greek, it is two nouns bound by a simple, uh, single article. It means a single person is meant. Our God and Savior, Jesus. One person, our God. And this is really important. It is so important. That's why I always talk about that Jesus isn't a moral teacher or a prophet or even just the Son of God. He is God incarnate, fully God in a human body. It makes all the difference in the world. It's very important. I was in Oakland checking out a cash register there, checking out in the line. Got into a conversation with a guy checking Uh, me through and I asked him if he was a Christian he said no I'm a Muslim and I said well you converted from Christianity to Islam and he said yes I did I changed my name to Kareem and I said why would you do something like that and he said well Jesus is a prophet and I said well if Jesus claimed to be God there's no room for any other prophets because if Jesus is God then he has sole access and authority for your worship. You see if Jesus is God then he has the claim on you. And then all other ways are liars and false. So it's very important that he says Jesus is God. And now And what's very important is that he's about to tell you to get very, very busy becoming a godly person. But first, you need to know that you've been put right by your faith with God by God. That a foundation has been laid in you. Right there it says that this righteousness you have received in faith in him. In other words, you've been put right with God. God has saved you. You've got the foundation of faith. Now, what I'm about to tell you to get busy, start becoming and transforming, is to work on what God has already given you. Uh, These attributes you can only uh, be given, and so they don't save you. So the first point uh, about this righteousness, this foundation of faith, God's sufficient power has been given you when you received uh, the faith. And Jesus said, you've got to be born again to get to heaven. So when we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in and makes us alive inside. He puts his spirit in there. All right? And now our job is to cooperate with that power. He says that I'm the vine, you're the branch. When you come to me, you've been connected to the root, the source. And, and now your job is to cooperate with that life flow, that spiritual sap that comes in and makes you a new creation. So here's a paraphrase of the first part here. 
God's very power has been given to us so that we have everything we need to live a life that pleases the Lord. That power comes through knowing Christ, the one who calls us by his own glory and goodness. Through that majestic goodness, you have access to his great and precious promise so that you can tap into and share the very power of God to overcome your sinful nature and escape the moral corruption that's all around us caused by evil desire. So first, some theological clarity. God has given Christians all they need to become spiritually mature. He's not saying, hey, you want to get to heaven? You better start being good. You need goodness and kindness and self-control and perseverance and brotherly kindness and love. No, he's saying, hey, you just got saved. Now, these are the attributes of God, your Savior. And he says, you got to be like me. I'm holy. Therefore, you must be holy, separated in character. This is who I am. And now I've given you power. Now I want you to, with that power, learn how to manifest these attributes that will not save you. They will not save you, but they will prove an evidence that you just might be saved. It's not about... Uh, becoming good. So you come to faith, you came to life, God has raised you to a new life, and that shares with a broken body and a sinful nature, and you are still surrounded by an evil world. Now what? He says, well, we've taken care of that. I've given you my nature. You can share, you can tap into my power, the word dunamis in the Greek, dynamite, because he knows The new life in you shares in a body that is broken and depraved and all wants to do is sin and have its own way. And the world has rejected him. So he says, you're going to need to be plugged in some, some mighty good power. And he says, that power is available in everything you need to become holy in this body, depraved and sinful as it is, and as warped and twisted and and depraved as your mind could have ever been and still is without God, he says, I've taken care of that. I've I've encoded in your faith this power from heaven that will allow you to rise above and become the person that you need to be in spite of who you are and in spite of the surrounding evil around you. That is what he's trying to get them to understand. I tell my testimony all the time, June 3rd, 1979. I've been witnessed to a lot, mostly by street preachers, and it all comes together in the supernatural kind of audio-visual in my head inside a disco. I walk out, I bow my head, I pray with my brother, a simple prayer that I'd never been taught, God, I'm sorry, you're right, never again, and now what? He says, you have every bit of power you're ever going to need to go from the disco, a godless 19-year-old who's never been to church a day in your life, to living a conquering Christian life. And I'm going to take you from the disco, through a Bible college, through through getting a master's degree and then a doctorate, and then you're going to be standing up in front of people preaching the word of God. 
How did that happen? It happened because it, he put his divine power in me, not for my personal gain, but to overcome who I was and who I would be without him and surrounded by this crazy, God-rejecting world. That's just my personal story. And all of you are living that out. God's power is supplied to the new creation he's created in you so that you can unfold that and become that. His divine power has given you everything you need for life. I'm riding, uh, flying in a plane, actually, next to some unfortunate soul who got seated next to me. <laughs> and I'm reading the Bible and she starts a conversation with me, and I see uh, Buddha beads on her prayer beads, and I start talking. She said, you know, I like Christianity, but I feel like I just need a little bit more. Something's lacking. I don't have everything I need for, for the life that I live. And I said, interesting that I have my Bible open. I've, I've got a verse I'd like you to read. So I turned to 2 Peter chapter 1 and to this verse, and I said, could you read this? And she's reading it silently, and I prefer when I'm dealing with people for them to read out loud. So I said to her, could you please read that out loud? And so she says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And she said, what do you know? What do you know? I said, you know, we really don't need to supplement when Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, the second person of the Godhead, takes up residence in our hearts. What else do we need? His divine power has given you everything you need. No, it doesn't say everything you want, does it? The disciples wanted smooth sailing, but they had Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on board. It didn't matter about the wind or the waves or the water was coming in over the side. Jesus was in the boat, the maker of heaven and earth. By his word, everything was made. Does it matter? He says, you've got everything you need, disciples. So the boat's upside down. Look who's next to you. He doesn't look concerned, does he? He's sleeping. Why? Because he's like, this is beautiful. It's like a lullaby. His divine powers come on board. You've got everything you need. If God's inside you, God, the living God. That's what he's trying to say. It's like a kid saying, <laughs> you know, I, I, I need a drink. I'm thirsty with Niagara Falls in his backyard. I mean, when Paul the Apostle says, I, you know what I want? I don't have everything I want. I want this thorn in my flesh gone. The Lord says, uh, my grace is sufficient. And commentators say there's a hint of sarcasm going on there by our Lord, saying, um, I think my grace is enough for you. In other words, you know, you're looking for wisdom in Christ is hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. And so when we have need for wisdom, he says, I, I think my wisdom is sufficient for you. Well, I need this power to conquer this problem I'm having, this besetting sin. It gets me every time. Where am I going to get the strength for that? And he says, I think that my 
power is sufficient. I mean, by his word, he's holding the universe. I think he can take care of the problem. And so he's saying his divine power. But here's what he says. He's giving you everything you need for life. And then he says, and godliness as well. Listen uh, to this. God has given you his divine nature so that you can conquer your self-centered sinful self and escape the corruption in the world, not to speak things into existence. The quote-unquote faith teachers go to this very verse and say, he has given you the divine nature the power from heaven for everything you need in life. Actually, the whole point is, yes, I've given you my nature so that you can be as holy as I am, not rich and prosperous. Whether God wants to make somebody rich and prosperous is his business. It has nothing to do with godliness and how we live. He says, men with warped minds think that godliness is a way for gain. He says, when godliness is, and contentment is great gain. Uh, but people don't see that. And so he's saying, uh, he's given us his power so that in every way we can live godly lives. Lives that are surrendered and worshipful in everything at school, at work, at home on Sunday and on Friday nights as well. That's why he's given us his power. Second point, then, how, how does this power be activated? I, I love hearing you say all of that, but where is it? <laughs> is it hiding in there somewhere, tucked in a drawer, or I need a passcode, or where? where is all of this dynamite from heaven? I don't see it. He says, well, that's because it's going to take some effort going to take, listen, through the, our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. We access that power. That power is released and manifests. His nature shines through us when we know him, when we're knowing him. By knowing him. In other words, the closer we get when communing with him, reading his word, being with his people, listening to sermons, being taught, praying, worshiping. As you know the Lord, and that word in a Jewish understanding of the word to know is very intimate. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she begot a son. That's the word to know. He says when the vine and the branches are connected, and he says, and you remain in me and I in you. He's saying, when there's nothing in between us and you're walking with me in that experience of knowing each other, those, that power, that nature will start to just kind of take over. That's a head knowledge that is well-informed with sound doctrine and information about our Lord and what he expects and a heart knowledge of knowing and, and being known and coming before God and, and letting 
him know me, stilling myself. That's where it starts to happen. And the reason there are so many Christians who have surface-only character is because it takes a depth of devotion of knowing Jesus and walking closely with him in a disciplined way to see those character qualities uh, manifest in that way. And so we better get busy before it gets crowded in here with other people. Uh, he says, listen, we activate this power when we know him, and by giving, I really want you to get this part, giving our attention to character development in our lives. So he says, make every effort, and let me throw out to you seven things, seven qualities that will really make you a successful Christian. And he says, you start with faith as a solid foundation. Now start building goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Seven virtues on the Christian shopping list. He says, I want you to scope these qualities out. I want you, listen, to evaluate your Christian life by this checklist. How am I doing as a Christian? Well, here's seven things. Score yourself in them. When you fail in them, repent and confess. Pray about these. Meditate to make every effort to add to your life these things. You should be working on this list to make sure that it gets into your heart and life and that you are known as a, a good person, that you have, uh, let me go through these words, goodness just means moral excellence. There's no such thing as a good person. God alone is good, and that goodness rubs off on those who follow closely. The second word, knowledge, the ability to discern God's will and orient your life with that will. Self-control, the ability to act entirely on one's own free will without being subject to the whims and pressures of other people, competing philosophies, or one's emotions or sinful promptings. Perseverance, the ability to bear up under pressure and trouble to go the distance in spite of prevailing winds, illnesses, financial problems, relational difficulties, desertion of friends, to just keep going, perseverance. Godliness, just shining and reflecting God's goodness through our lives. Brotherly kindness, having a soft spot in your heart for God's people and love, that agape, that positive, unconditional regard that puts the needs and best interests of others first and foremost. He says, are these a part of your life, your life or are you just, just plain happy to be not going to hell and going to heaven like 90% of the Christians in the world? Maybe. I don't know many people like um, a missionary in the Philippines that I traveled with for three months in the Philippines when I was a young man in my 20s. And he walked into the jungle for his prayer time and he had prayer cards. 
and on them were, were these seven words. And he said, these are important because the Lord said, if I have these in my life in ever-increasing measures, that it will keep me from being ineffective and unproductive and from ever falling and to have a rich welcome into God's kingdom. Yeah, these seven things are pretty important. So I'm going to go take a walk and meditate on these seven things. Most of us are like, look, I'm not saved by being good, so I really don't have to be good. I'm going to heaven by grace. Why all the hard work to do this? And Peter says, let me tell you why all the hard work is necessary. God's saying, I need your cooperation. I want you to be eager. I want you to abstain from the old things and put these things into action. Thirdly, a rich reward. Here's some motivation. Now listen to this. Let this grab you. If you get hold of these qualities in your life, Peter says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they're ever increasing in your life, you're guaranteed an effective and productive Christian life. Guaranteed. But if these things are missing, your vision's off. You're not going anywhere. You can't even see straight. And obviously, you've forgotten that you've been cleansed from your past sins. You're back to square one. Now, you know, I wish that to motivate us, he said, uh, you know, here are seven things. You get these in your life, and you win a fabulous dream vacation. Uh, or a brand-new custom-built home. Or $2 million is on the line. Just get these seven things. And boy, you'd see people with open book, pen in hand, and notebook. But when he says, you know what? <laughs> the reward is spiritual. The carrot out here, it's, it's delayed. It's out there. It's when you see the Lord. And you know it'll keep you from having a spiritual wipeout. And, you, and, and you'll be very productive Christian. It's like, <sighs> sometimes. I'm sorry, that's how we are. But we need to let the Holy Spirit kind of awaken us. Um, Proverbs 8.11, wisdom and knowledge is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire compares with her. And so Proverbs says, look, spiritual qualities, these spiritual qualities are worth more than your dream house and your vacation because they have eternal value. He says, you know, it's cool that you work out and you exercise, and there's a little bit of profit in it, but he says godliness, to exercise godliness by what I'm talking about, taking these seven things, laying them out in prayer, repenting and confessing and aiming and setting goals. Godliness is profitable not only in this life, but in the life to come. We need to see that. What he's saying is, look, most Christians have these seven qualities of some sort. God gives us with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're there. What he's saying is, don't be satisfied with a C or a B in any of them. Work at an A plus, ever-increasing measures, meaning... Work on these things until you get an A+. Plus. Then, uh, when we're dead and with the Lord, because that's the only time that we're ever going to see a total A+, plus, but it keeps us busy and on the straight path. He says, 
two words that'll keep you from being ineffective, which means idle, and unproductive, which literally means no fruit on the tree. And you know, it just reminds me of when Jesus was hungry and there was, he went to this big uh, leafed uh, fig tree. And the bigger the leaf, the bigger the fruit. But he went under the leaves and it was all show. And he said, man, that's no good. And uh, that tree didn't do very well. <laughs> it said, look, come to me. I've got lots of fruit under here. You hungry? And you get there and all you see is these big fat green fake leaves and no fruit. He says, you know what? You got these qualities, you won't end up like that. You'll be effective. He says, when these things are missing in a Christian's life, he says, listen, something's radically wrong with you and your connection. It's the chef who, who serves you nasty tasting food. Like what? Disconnect here, your famous chef. You went to what school? And wow, this is terrible. Uh, an artist with no perspective, just like whacked. Uh, the quarterback who can't, you know, complete a pass. The Christian without godliness is a misnomer, an anomaly. Something's wrong. So he's saying, go down the list. If these are absent, what's the problem? Obviously, you've forgotten You've been cleansed from your past sins. In other words, he's saying, uh, you've, you're missing the whole point, obviously. I mean, you were, you were cleansed from that kind of life. You were set free. There was a new life that came into you. And you're not growing. You're not showing that God has set you free from that. So obviously, there's a disconnect between your initial salvation and claim to be saved, and now you have nothing to show for it. And what a Christian has to show for it are godliness, brotherly kindness, love, perseverance, goodness. Now, we all occasionally will have rotten fruit appear on the tree, but more times than not, we ought to be manifest, manifesting these kinds of uh, situations and fruits. He says, so closing, you might want to make your calling an election sure. Those words are very uh, synonymous for the same thing. Calling an election stands for God's wooing of you to bring you to himself. So he says, you might want to just kind of make that sure that that really happened. And the way you do that, by using a lot of effort to see God manifest these character qualities in your life. That will bring a validation. It'll bring peace to you. Do you ever wonder, hey, am I really saved? He says, well, make, your, make every effort to make your calling sure by checking out the kind of life you live. There ought to be signs of godliness and holiness, the way you speak, the way you think, the way you treat other people. He says, make your calling sure. Nothing different than what Paul the Apostle says, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Don't you realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Examine yourself. See if you pass the test. That's all he's asking. He's saying, you know, some, some Christians lack character qualities and they're still saved. 
and other people think they're saved, they lack character qualities, and they just think, well, I'm a kind of a weak Christian. Peter says, you might want to check that out in this life. And the way to do that is examine your life for Christian character that is a result of knowing the Lord and walking with him. He closes finally with a positive and a negative. He says, first of all, if these things are in your life, one, the negative, you'll never fall. He says, get these things up and running, and you'll never have a spiritual wipeout. You'll never be in front of the church with tears in your eyes and saying, I have sinned in front of the whole congregation. I'll never forget a televangelist who I loved. I loved him. I traveled to his church thousands of miles. And when I heard a rumor that he had fallen, I said, there's no way on earth that man fell. That's a lie. And the next thing I see on television, tears, and I have sinned. Now, it could happen to anybody. But he says, you got these seven things going around in you. That day, you will leapfrog over that. That will never happen to you. You'll never be up on the roof and have a Bathsheba moment where your whole life for a year is out of whack and cause so much pain and disgrace. He says, I'm trying to save you from slipping up. And if you just work on these things, you'll be safe. The positive thing is standing ovation when you get there, a rich welcome into the kingdom, which implies, my friend, that there are less than rich welcomes to the kingdom. And there will be, because there are Christians who are saved by grace and do not much of anything except whine and complain and cause problems. But they're saved. They really are. They're not getting a rich welcome. There are crowns. There are responsibilities in the life to come. There are positions to reign with Christ and honors to be received. Those people who either drank themselves to death because they couldn't uh, let the power of God change them, but they were truly believers, they will be there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, they are there, saved as through fire with no reward. But he says, if you are somebody who got these seven things, you're working on them. You're like, whoa, I blew it today. That was unloving. Check. You go back to your knees and you say, I'm going to become more loving. Now you go back into the situation. How do I let that love happen now? See, you're engaged. You're intentional. You're focused. You have objection, objectives, clear, concise. You're at work. You're exercising. You're at God's gym that, that brings eternal buffness and reward. You know, I'm not impressed. I'm really not impressed. I mean, sort of, sort of we are impressed when people are all buffed out. But there are buffed out people here that are, are anorexic, spiritually speaking. And when we get there, you're going to find out there's a big reversal and revelation. Who was really buff? All along. And you know what? You know who's really buff spiritually. You really do. We do know. 
And he's just saying, you want Jesus to see all smiles, say welcome. And you got some clapping going on and your shoulders are back and your chin's up high and you've got no regrets. He says, those seven things, those seven things brought you to that place. The grace of God, of course. His power, your diligent effort equals great reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love, your goodness. Thank you that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And so we want to stand before you, God, unashamed and just so happy to be there and enjoy your great reward. We thank you for your wonderful word that gives us a head, heads up so that day don't take, don't, does not overtake us as a thief but that we're well prepared and that we do well. In Jesus' name, amen.